right, so much great stuff going on. Even this past week, we had, last Wednesday, we had the uh, baptism, and over a dozen people were baptized. We did it right out there um, in the front of the church, and we had a service, and a lot of you came to that. It was, it was, I really enjoyed that. It was so good, the fellowship and the, the time. And then this past weekend, we um, had the uh, uh, conversational evangelism uh, seminar that we went through, and that was good. So all kinds of stuff happening right now. We are going to finish up chapter 11 in the book of Hebrews. So you can turn there. You'll be looking at verses 30 through 40. And the title is A Better Faith. This comes out of the last verses, um, actually last verse of this chapter, where it says that God has provided something better for us. They had a good testimony, but something better for us. So we have a better faith. And we'll talk about what that means at the end of it. We've been talking about a group of people that feel like maybe Jesus isn't all that they thought he was at first, and they ought to go back to Judaism, they ought to go back to the temple, offer the sacrifices. So this letter was written to them to show that, hey, Jesus is is greater in every way. And he's talked about certain individuals. He's talked about Moses, talked about Melchizedek, we've talked about Aaron, we've talked about the sacrifices. Um, and other uh, individuals as well. But in chapter 11, we just get blasted with, you know, dozen or so more names of people, men and women, that lived it out. And some of these we know well. Some of them maybe are going to be new to you uh, today as we read. We left off last time looking at the life of Moses in verse 29. Now we jump ahead uh, 40 years, and we come to verse 30 where the, now Joshua is leading the country, uh, the nation of Israel, and they are about to go into the promised land, but they're going to have this first city to contend with, which is Jericho. So let's read together where we see that faith brought strongholds down. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. So they come off the mountains of Moab. As they make their way down, they come down into the Jordan River Valley which is where the Jordan River is. Further up north in Galilee would be, in the same valley would be uh, the Sea of Galilee. But they cross just north of where the Dead Sea is. And as they come across on dry ground, another miracle performed at the Jordan River, like the Red Sea, as they come across, the town directly in front of them that they have to deal with is Jericho. Now Jericho Um, is a city that had huge walls. And I'm going to show you a picture of a a rendition of what maybe they look like in just a moment. But as they they come to this scene, um, Joshua, now the leader, is um, out wondering, praying, thinking, and the, the Lord himself meets with them. And he gives them a battle plan to go take this mighty city, Jericho. Here's the plan. You're the new commander. You're the general of the army. So what I want you to do, you're going to like this, Joshua. This has never been done in the history of warfare before. It's the first time. You're going to be the first one to deploy this method. All right. He says, well, what is it? He says, well, I want you to walk around the city for seven days and don't say a word. Okay. On the seventh day, I want you to get really loud. And I want you to blow the trumpets and I want you to shout. And the walls are going to fall down. And you know what he says? All right, let me go tell everybody. 
Just with immediate faith, he just, as the scripture relates it, he goes, this relates, you find him marching around the city for seven days, and then on the seventh day, they blow up the trumpets, and the walls end up falling to the ground, and they are able to overcome uh, the inhabitants of the city. And this is one of those great, amazing, I mean, to me, it's like one of the standout moments of faith in scripture. I mean, we read it, we've heard it, probably a lot of us, um, in Sunday school, heard this, and maybe even did some of the songs that went along with this. And it's like, we don't even think about how amazing this is. But imagine if you were the one, the new leader of the army of Israel, and you've got to go pass this on to the troops of what the battle plan is. And you know, they seem to just like, all right, full of faith. They believe it. You don't see them pushing back like they had 40 years earlier. Um, with the 12 spies that came back, 10 of them giving a bad report. Um, I want to move into those slides. If you put up that first slide of uh, ancient Jericho. So this is actually a photograph. And then with the archaeological discoveries that they have made there, you now have an art, like a, a digital rendition of what that town could have looked like. So um, I don't have a close-up, maybe on the next one. Just go to the next slide, actually, and we'll, we'll switch back to it in just a second. You can see the bottom white wall. It's kind of like an embankment, and they have a, a, a wall that's built up on that terrace. And then you have homes, and then you go to another, ter uh, another wall, and then you have the main city. So um, this is how it was laid out. And as they marched around and they um, made that shout in faith, the Lord toppled the walls. Let me read to you from uh, Joshua 6.20. So the people shouted when the priests blew the trumpets. And it happened when the people heard the sound of the trumpet. And all the people shouted with a great shout that the wall fell down flat. Then the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they took the city. So they have this kind of embankment wall. Then they have the, the first city wall which would have made it very difficult to scale. But what they found in the archaeological discoveries is what we read right here, is that the walls fell down flat. So it made a ramp for the Israelite army to run up in and to invade uh, the city of Jericho. Um, we know that they were crossing because of what we read in the scriptures at harvest time. And when they um, came and dug out this ancient city and they began to dig into some of the rooms, what they ended up finding, I mean, go to the next slide, was um, uh, these rooms full of jars. Uh, yeah, right there. Uh, these rooms full of jars of grain. It was harvest time and it would be likely that this would be exactly what they, they would find. You know, if you were going to be a city that was sieged, one thing that you would really hope for is that the, the fathers of that town or village, that they had build really built, built really large walls to keep the enemy at bay. That happened. Um, if you were going to survive the siege, you had to make certain that you had grain and water. And you could survive a siege um, basically until you ran out or the walls were breached. When they found this city, they found all of this grain, which meant that they, the, whoever attacked them didn't siege them for long, which fits with the biblical narrative. How long was the siege? Yeah, just a week, seven days. So th that explains why there would be so much grain. They were told not to take any of the spoils of it. 
The other thing that they found in the archaeological dig was that there was a massive burn layer, like of three feet thick of, of burnt uh, material and ash. Now, the reason I'm taking some time to, to kind of show you this is because we read here in Joshua 6, we're reading in chapter 11, verse 30, that the, the walls of Jericho fell down when the Israelites came in. I believe that as those that cling to the word of God, we believe the word of God. But you have to know this. I want to make you aware that there's many liberal scholars out there and most universities are going to be teaching that the Israelites were not the enemy that came and sieged uh, Jericho at the time of all this destruction. They say that because they say Israel did not come into the land. The exodus did not happen for some 200 or year, so years later. So all this devastation that we read about in the archaeological discovery, although it lines up perfectly with the biblical account, they said, not so fast. We don't think that they actually were the ones that came in and saw this take place. We think that they wrote all of this stuff later to give themselves a really good, you know, uh, uh, history of the founding of their nation and all of these great conquests that we read through Joshua and Judges did not happen. It all happened a couple of hundred years later. Now, the first um, archaeologist to go in to uh, this place, uh, Garstang, uh, Garstang, John Garstang, and then later Bryant Wood, they came to a different conclusion. They said, no, this is the, all the materials here relate to a 1400, that would be a biblical, that's the date we're given in the Bible, uh, 1400, 1406 BC, right in that time frame, um, uh, siege. That's what we think happened, and that's when we believe Israel um, was part of the Exodus. So they say, no, Israel was not in the land. You can't believe it, you can't trust it, even though all these other matters line up perfectly. Which brings me to this next um, set of slides that I want to show you. You can put the next one up. It's a discovery that was made at Mount Ebal. And what you're looking at there in that picture, it's just one item. And they're just showing you different sides of it. It's only the size of a postage stamp. Well, two postage stamps folded together, like a booklet. It's a piece of lead. And um, you can read this in Job. Um, they would take soft lead and they would use an iron pen and they would write on these little tablets. And this is what they found um, at Mount Ebal. What is Mount Ebal? Well, Deuteronomy chapter 27 tells us that um, when Israel is about to go into the promised land, they were told to have somebody shout down all the blessings for obeying the law of God from Mount Gerizim. And from Mount Ebal, they were to shout down all of the, anybody know? The curses. Curses? Yeah, like consequences for not obeying the, the, the word of the Lord. Look at it. Just, you don't even have to read it. Just turn to Deuteronomy 27 and look at, you'll, you'll see how many times it says cursed. It's significant to what I'm going to show you in just a second. So they found this discovery just a couple of years ago, and now it's finally the, the, the material or the findings are being released. Mount Ebal is where the curse took place, but it's also the place that we read that God commanded Joshua to build an altar and Israel worshipped. So Mount Ebal is a significant place in Scripture, probably not high on your radar, but it is mentioned. They found this tablet just a couple of years ago at this location. 
the first archaeologist, don't remember his name, that went in and found um, this altar, um, they pulled out tons of debris, and as they pulled out the debris, they had these dump piles um, that had never been gone through. They, don't, they didn't know what was in it. So an uh, archaeologist, believer, by the name of Scott Stripling, um, went over there and they began to go through the material. And it's called a wet sifting process, which I, I kind of laugh at because it's like, wow, what kind of technology is this? Here's the technology. Remember when you were digging in your backyard and you found a rock and there was dirt all over it? What'd you do? You got a hose and you squirted it. So that, that's the technology. I discovered this probably at four years old, actually. So, um, but they're just now, it's just now made it over to the Middle East, I guess. But, but I mean, this is, this is something they do. It's very simple. On our last, well, we've done this on the last couple of trips we've taken to Israel. There's a project that's called the Temple Mount Sifting Project. And what it is, they have all this material that they've taken, like tons hundreds of thousands of tons of, of, of uh, material um, from out from underneath the Temple Mount and or around um, this ancient city of Jerusalem. The last time we were there, we were deploying this um, very technical wet sifting project. We squeezed the handle on the, the, uh, the pressure nozzle and we started squirting all of this uh, stuff. So we we're getting this bucket full of just mud and whatever. We put it on these screens and we were spraying it. And we found glass, we found, um, uh, we found some nails. But the most exciting thing is, I don't, it was like either six or eight ancient coins that we found. And um, so, you know, this is the project, the process they were using. But can you imagine if that was covered with dirt mixed in with a bunch of a lot of other stuff? You wouldn't know. So this is how they found it. And once they, they, and they know they were able to date it. So I know I'm geeking out a little bit here, but just stick with me. So the oldest um, civilizations will be found at the bottom of an archaeological dig. It's just simple. If, you know, the first people to come along built their city, it got burnt, it got destroyed, whatever, they would level it and they would build on top of it. And this, what happened, there are some sites in Israel that you cannot believe that they are, you know, 15, 20 civilizations built one after another on top of each other. Those are called a tell. You ever heard of Tel Aviv? So those, those structures are called, if you call it, those, you know, hills are called tells. And what the archaeologists will do, they will dig into a section of it, and by digging into a cross-section, they get to see all the layers of that cake of civilization. So when they were going through this dump pile, it had already been figured out from what time period all of that material had come from. And it was from around 1400 BC. And then they found this. Well, what is this? Well, the next slide shows you, um, this is an enhanced picture. Um, the actual, uh, they weren't able to open it, so they've done all kinds of, like thousands of scans to come up with this image. And what they find here, this is the, the name Yahweh. Um, Yahweh is the name Jehovah. If you read in the Old Testament and you find all the all capitals L-O-R-D, that's this name right here. It's, it's Yahweh. And so they found this name Yahweh, which is the covenant name of God revealed to Moses. This is the covenant name of God found at a site 
that is a covenant worship site of the Israelites at a time that modern scholarship says they shouldn't be there. Do you see where I'm going with this? And so they, they have this, and this was one of the uh, names that they found. It's called Proto-Alphabetic um, Script, so Hebrew, uh, early Hebrew writing. The other thing that's significant with this is the scholars say that the Hebrews did not have um, any language at this time to write with, that they, they didn't read and they didn't write. But now you have something that's been found at a time before they say they're supposed to be there, but exactly when the Bible says it's going to be there um, because of the dating method, at a place where not only do they find writing, but they find the writing of the most significant name they could have written, yeah. Yahweh. And so as they went through the rest of this tablet, they couldn't open it, but they scanned it. And um, I'll read to you the part. I, I think there is more that they haven't revealed yet. Um, but this is the part that they have been able to put together. Did anybody look at Deuteronomy 27? If not, you might be a little surprised here. This is a very cheery message that is, is given. <laughs> cursed, 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 cursed by the God Yahweh. You will die cursed. Cursed, you will surely die. Cursed by Yahweh. Cursed, cursed, cursed. At Mount Ebal, where they shouted these curses down, and the name Yahweh is found there not once, but twice. So this is dated based on the metal, based on the other artifacts that were found on that same layer, is dated um, uh, Scott Stripling believes there's a range of dates, but believes that it lines up within when Israel would have been in the land about 1400. Which means those that said, if you can follow me where I was going with this, those that said that Jericho was not conquered by Israel, well, now Israel is in the land. So there you can find, like you read through Joshua and they conquered this city and they conquered this city and they conquered this city. The archaeologists go to those cities and it's conquered, it's conquered, it's destroyed, it's destroyed. But they will never acknowledge <clears throat> that it was Israel because they say Israel couldn't have been in there. Because if Israel's in the land, then there was a real Egypt. And if there's a real Egypt, now you've got to deal with a miracle working God. Right. So this is why they are so hesitant uh, to bring this up. So one other point before we move on. They say, uh, the same group of people, that Moses did not write the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. But that's what Jesus said. Jesus referred to the writings of Moses. Moses it says in the text that Moses wrote these things down. So they don't believe that the word of God is accurate. And so they they've dismissed this. And here's one of the, the, what they'll say. If you read... In Genesis chapter 1, you will find the name for God of Elohim. In your translation, our translation in English, it's just going to be G-O-D, God. But behind it, it's the name Elohim. It's in chapter 1, the creation account. You come to the second creation account, and now you find the name, anybody want to guess? Yahweh. So what they say is, well, you know, the name Yahweh came, you know, at some other time, and there wasn't, they were different gods. Moses, um, you know, really is not writing. It actually was written like 500, during the days of Josiah, so much later. But as they came to this, and if you look on that, that first line at the end, it says, Cursed by the God, Elohim, El, 
Yahweh. And so now where they say, you know, Genesis uh, chapter 1 is one account, another author hundreds of years later writes it, not uh, Moses giving two different accounts of the, the same event because they say the name Elohim and Yahweh never go together, so it can't be one single author. But now in a single phrase of a tablet found at a Hebrew worship site, you find both the name El and Yahweh. So what, what does this mean? That means for the young seminary student who goes and wants to be a pastor, she wants to go be a missionary, wants to study the word of God, and they come into their class, and I'm not saying it happens out at Liberty University, I don't believe it does, but they come into that class and then they find, hey, we're going to do Old Testament survey. First of all, Moses didn't write the Old Testament books. What? But it says, Jesus said, yeah, that's not right either. Oh, and by the way, Israel did not conquer. And all of these things begin to just undermine them. And here's all the evidence. But you see, there's a, a reason to not believe these things. So, listen, I, as you can tell, I like to read and study some archaeology and these findings. Um, but that does, not verif that does not validate the word of God for me. The word stands on its own. I don't, whether we have a tablet or we have jars of grain or whether we have a burn layer, I don't need it. I believe the word of God. But there are hundreds, if not thousands, of archaeological discoveries that back up the word of God. If you find the name of some city, guess what? In the Bible, you'll find it there. If you find that they were using coins, you can, you can go buy those coins. You read through the coins of the, um, I have a bunch of them. I mean, you read through the coins of scripture, how they use this coin. You can go to Israel. You can buy those coins today. And so like even down to like the coins, the names of people, the names of city, when it happened, how it happened. Hey, I believe it because it's in the Bible. And I am not surprised that we find these discoveries. Um, and uh, even if maybe this discovery doesn't turn out to be all that it's, it's, it's kind of hopeful that it will be, that doesn't shake my faith. So listen, we can trust the word of God. And don't let somebody or some book who they seem to be smi uh, smarter than you because they have you know, a, a PhD behind their name, if they're dismissing the word of God and they're saying it's not true, um, you know, their PhD doesn't mean much. Amen. So don't allow that to shake your faith. Your faith is that the word of God has been handed down accurately. Whether we've found the evidence for it yet or not, I don't have to have it. But there is a ton of archaeological evidence to back up what we read here. So, yeah. Just like that, the walls fell. Well, the next verse, and I guess just to make an application, is that as Israel was going in, they saw these strongholds, these huge you know, walls around cities, and they wondered how they were going to fall. They fell by what? By faith. By faith, the walls came down. And in each of our lives, there can be these high-rise structures that keep us from walking in victory and walking in what the Lord has called us to do. And those have to be overcome. Well, how were they overcome? By faith. Let me read to you 1 John 5, 3 through 5. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. 
And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Jesus is the one that will bring you victory in those areas of your life. And don't get, don't get wise in your own opinion and thinking that someone else or something else is really what's going to bring you the deliverance, this overcoming, to see the walls fall down. I know, I, for me, I think about it like this. What am I going to lean on? Am I going to lean on the word of God and Jesus Christ and what's been given to me? Or am I going to lean on the modern, you know, uh, advantages that are all around me? And then I think this. What did my brothers and sisters lean on 2,000 years ago? What did they lean on 1,500 years ago? And if this country was to be leveled flat, you know, what am I going to lean on in the next 10 years of my life? If all of the things that I can have access today can be taken away that give me the ability to actually stand and have victory and they're taken away, then I don't believe that's what the Lord has given to us. I'm not saying they can't be helpful. Let me just name some of the things I'm thinking about. You might even be surprised some of the things that I put on this list. You know, there's all kinds of great books out there. You might look to, you know, really discovering an aspect of yourself that you've not tapped into to have victory. Or the support groups, or some counselor, or a church. The church is not Jesus. And we can lean on the church in an unhealthy way. Listen, the church is Jesus' idea. I love the church. He loves the church. It's good to love what Jesus loves, just so you know. And he loves the church. He gave his life for it. But the church is not Messiah. And a counseling group is not, a counselor is not Messiah, nor is you know, your brother or sister. Now, can these things be helpful? Well, we all know they can. But you need to be leaning on and trusting because there's one thing that overcomes, and it's Jesus. And you've got to be trusting in him. So if you are in a place in your life as a follower of Jesus Christ, and it seems like you are underneath that stronghold, the answer is not go find something else, but the answer is, Lord, help me. Deliver me. I need to have faith in you in a way that I have not yet. And you know, for some, the situation may be the Lord's like, I'm not showing up because you're trusting in everything else. You want me to show up, but you've put your trust in 10 other things. And so you don't want to let go of those 10 things, and yet you want me to show up. And he's saying, I'm not going to show up until you Trust in me and you believe in me. And that's what Israel had to do and that's what we have to do. In verse 31, by faith harlot Rahab, the harlot Rahab, did not perish with those in Jericho who did not believe when she had received the spies. So same time frame, same city, but this time we are introduced to this prostitute by the name Rahab. Hebrew spies went out. Um, they were being chased. They went and they hid at her place. And she told them, hey, we heard what your God did. We heard what Yahweh did at the Red Sea and how he defeated the king of Sihon and, and Og. We, everybody in the land is afraid of your God. Your God is the one true living God. She had faith and they, she said, well, if you'll, they said, if you hide us, when we come back, just put a rope out your, your uh, window and we won't destroy your house. Interesting in the archaeological discoveries at Jericho, there's one part of the walls in the terrace area that was not destroyed. How convenient. 
that that was the case. And there's, it was likely that that would have been the place where Rahab. But Rahab's mentioned here. You're like, wow, of all the people in the Old Testament, we choose a prostitute to, to mention as a woman of great faith? That's what the Lord said. Let's look at her and let's think on her. But that's not the last time the Lord highlights um, Rahab. There's one other time, actually, before this, in Matthew. Matthew chapter 1, in the genealogy of Jesus, that long list of names that you never read and skip over, we read, Salmon begot Boaz. Boaz by Rahab. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Obed begot Jesse. And who did Jesse begot? King David. And who was in the lineage of King David? Jesus was born. And it's not just Rahab that we find in that genealogy. We also find somebody by the name of Tamar, who played the harlot to deceive her father-in-law so she could have a child. It's a complicated story, and it's not pretty. But her name is in the genealogy of Jesus. And then also we read here Ruth. Um, two Gentiles, two harlots. And, you know, you, if, you, you read these names, and we just blow through them. But if you would have been in the first century world and you were reading this genealogy, and they were a big, genealogies were a big deal back then. You wanted to know who you were dealing with. This is their bio. This is whether you could trust them. You'll tell you if you have a relationship uh, of good or bad with them. So these genealogies were significant, especially within Judaism, because this led to who Jesus was. So we can know that he was the one. It was his credentials in one sense. And the Lord basically takes and he underlines Rahab. He highlights it in yellow, draws a circle around it, and put two stars by it. That's the way it would have looked to them as they went through this list. And I love the fact that the Lord said, let's consider these ladies. And he brought them into uh, the family. But not just any of the family of Israel, but into the lineage of Jesus which is to say by the Lord, I'm not ashamed of these women. I'm not afraid to be identified with them. I'm not afraid. Now, these are women that repented and became you know, women of faith and, and were used. But it's that shame that you know, I'm sure many in here feel that keeps us from thinking that God wants to use us or that keeps me from being able to come to God. You know, He doesn't want me. I've sinned. I've done something shameful. But listen, listen. God is a God of grace. So much so that he refers. I, I imagine if you could have asked Rahab, um, if she would have been around at the time that Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31 was being written, and she read, by faith the harlot Rahab did not perish. And you would have said, hey, um, are you okay with this? She said, can you take out harlot? I mean, would it be all, Could you just say Rahab? But the Holy Spirit wants the word harlot in there. Why? So we can know that God looked upon a woman who was once a sinner but came to faith and he says, I am not afraid to be identified. He wants us to see that. Because I think a lot of us live in the shame of what is already covered under the blood of Jesus. Now listen, if you're in current sin, be ashamed. But if you've repented of that, 
then you're under the blood of Jesus and you should not be ashamed. And it's that shame that keeps us back from stepping into this area of ministry or answering that call or you hear the conversation and you think, I've got something to say. And you're like, who are you to talk? You are a harlot in Jericho. You have no business to open your mouth. And I think we read here that the Lord is saying, oh, you have business. It's my business and I want you to open your mouth and speak. So the Lord does not condemn us who are under the blood of the Lamb. And we as the church better be careful that we don't find condemning that which Jesus is sanctifying. And so there is place for sinners to come into the family of God. And aren't we all glad that that is the case? And so uh, what a beautiful um, account that is, is put in here when you begin to think about uh, the name Rahab. Well, the walls fall down and her, she is spared. Obviously, she's in the lineage. And um, then in verses 32 through 34, we read about how faith enabled uh, other men and women to perform great exploits. Not a lot of time here at the end of the, the, the book um, or of this chapter. It says, what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon. Remember, he defeated the innumerable Midianite army with 300 men. Or of Barak. Uh, Barak is the one who defeated Sisera with his 900 um, chariots, which would be, that's like, you know, a footman going against a tank. The only problem is, do you know what happened to those 900 chariots? Anybody? They got stuck in the mud. Just a little bit of mud, and those 900 chariots were useless. And so um, God gave that victory. Samson, of course, liberated Israel from the Philistines. Jephthah was a judge who defeated the Ammonites. Uh, just going through the list here, David. We all know David stood up and defeated Goliath, chosen to be the king of Israel. Samuel, the last prophet, excuse me, last judge of the nation of Israel before they went to the king. And they had prophets like Elijah and Elisha. What did these men do? Verse 33 and 34. Who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. Who do you think about when you think you hear that? Daniel. But you know, David also took care of the lion out in the field. Samson had some encounters. Verse 34. Quenched the violence of fire. I think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Escaped the edge of the sword. Out of weakness were made strong. Became valiant in battle. Turned to flight the armies of aliens. Now we really love the last two phrases of this verse. But what about that third to last phrase? Out of weakness were made strong. We don't want to be weak. We don't want to be vulnerable. We don't want to be put in the, in the, the crisis mode. Every miracle is preceded by a crisis. You do know that. So when we say, God, why is it that we don't see any more miracles today? I think the Lord's saying, can I put you in a miracle? And we may, if we heard those words, we say, yes. But he said, well, can I put you in a desperate situation? You know, because that's what happens. God wants us to have faith in the weakness. He creates situations around our life or circumstances and even the sins of others can put us in a place of weakness. But it's in that place of weakness that he will make us strong. But we must have what? Faith. And what, willing to walk out the strength that he gives to us. God is omnipotent. 
He could, it means he can, yes, he's all powerful. There's nothing that is hard for God. It is not harder for God to give you a million dollars than it is for him to help you find a nickel. Okay? It's not harder for God to uh, heal leukemia than it is to take away your headache. God's not, now we, for us, we measure them by our ability, and there is a world of difference in those scenarios. But for an omnipotent God, you don't have to pray harder or louder because for him, it's never a drain of his power. God could have lifted up Israel and he could have transported them out of Egypt and he could have set them down in their proper allotments all throughout the land of Israel and could have immediately annihilated every one of the people in that land. But that's not the way God chose to do it. He chose to use people. And guess what? He's still using people. He wants to use us for the purposes that he's called us to. He wants us to be those that are walking into those great exploits. But understand, it's going to be daunting. It's going to be things that will cause us to say, your plan is what? To walk around the city how many times? Your plan is to, is to do what? Is to send a little, little teenage boy out to fight a giant? That's your plan? That's not a good plan. And yet it's God's plan. And we have to be willing to step into those things. You know, um, it's in Ezekiel. Um, I think it's around chapter 34. But it's speaking about the future kingdom. When God has returned, Jesus has come back and the earth is being killed. And water begins to flow out from underneath the temple. And first, um, the, the, the prophet has told Ezekiel to step into the river that's flowing out and it's going down in the Dead Sea and it's healing the nations and healing the waters. And he says, step out and it's at his ankles and then it's at his knees and then it's at his hips and then he's swimming. You know, I think this is a, just a, a picture of how the Lord calls us. There are times in our life where what he asks us to do is just around our ankles. It's kind of easy. And there are other things that he asks us to do. It's like, wow, this is up at my knees. And it's like, wow. This is like up at my waist. This is getting serious. And then there are times when he says, just jump in and get in the current. You're not going to fill the bottom anymore. Just jump in and be a part of what I'm doing. And you know what? God is still, he's redeeming the nations today. And we need to jump in and we need to get involved. And God wants people of faith. And so may God increase our faith. We close here. In verses 35 through 30, uh, well, not quite, sorry, false alarm. Preacher's first, and in conclusion, I don't actually do that. I, I, don't, I don't have many in conclusions just to keep you longer, but I, we have two in conclusions today. So in conclusion, number one, faith enabled them to endure persecution. Women received their dead, raised to life again. We're like, yeah, that's the kind of faith that I want to be a part of. And others were tortured. Well, how do I sign up for the first one? <laughs> you, you don't get to sign up for one or the other. Your sovereign loving God is leading your life. And he will take you into the blessings, the triumphs, and the tribulations that he thinks is best for you, his glory, and the kingdom. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. <laughs> well, What's a better resurrection in your mind? Is a better resurrection to be the woman that sees your dead uh, son come back to life? Or is a better resurrection to be the one that's tortured and is raised at the end of days? God says, 
It's which one? It's the one that endures the torture and is given eternal life. I mean, look at it. It says, others obtained a what kind of resurrection? A better resurrection. Still others had trials of mockings and scourgings. Yes, and of chains and imprisonments. Think of Jeremiah. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. Tradition, not in the Bible, but tradition tells us that Moses, uh, Isaiah was running from Manasseh, hid in a hollowed out log, found him and had the log sawed in two. That Isaiah died in that way. They were tempted, they were slain with the sword, they wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute. Who's being destitute? People of faith. Afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts, mountains, in dens and caves of the earth. What's that? They were homeless. People of faith have gone through this. We should expect hardships. 1 Peter 2, uh, 4, 12 through 13. I'll, you put it up on the screen. You saw it last week. But we shouldn't consider it a strange thing when we go through trials. This is what God said would happen. And this is what has happened. And the long testimony of, re, of, of those that have walked with the Lord. Which means this. When you go through difficulty, God's not been unfaithful to you. When you go through difficulty, it doesn't mean you're in trouble. You see, you know, you can bring hardship in your own life, for sure. We can make some dumb decisions, and which of us haven't. But when it's just circumstance or that's going on, I think the enemy loves to make us think that we've done something wrong or that God's not been faithful. But listen, if, you have been, if you're destitute, if you're afflicted, if you're tormented, if you're wandering about and you don't have a home, does that mean God has abandoned you? Does that mean God is unfaithful to you? It doesn't mean any of those things. This is what the people of faith experienced that God said, think about them. I'm talking to you about faith in general. In the earlier chapters, he said, but think about what everybody else has gone through. And so the application to us is that we will be people of faith that endure the hardship. I'm not trying to take away from the difficulty of what you're going through. Every one of these things is hard. But listen, Quit talking about walking away from Jesus because it got hard. <laughs> we need to just, we need to get rid of that. Well, I prayed and it didn't happen. Well, what about Isaiah? Stuck in a log being sawn in two. Do you think he prayed? He wasn't, pray he wasn't delivered. What about the Son of God in the Garden of Gethsemane saying, Father, if it's your will, let this cup pass. And yet Jesus died on the cross. So oh, listen, let's just settle this right now. We will have things that will be prayed for that will not be answered in the way that we may be have asked. But if we learn to say, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done, then every one of our prayers will be answered. And this is where we need to come to. And listen, I just, I, I hope some of you that are maybe feeling, I don't know if God's been faithful and I've gone through this and this person's done that. It's real. Yeah. It's painful. It's hard. Maybe you're destitute. Maybe you're homeless. It's not that it's not real. <clears throat> but we've got to change how we respond in those times. So I have determined in my heart and mind with the grace of God that it doesn't matter what news ever comes to me, I will never walk away from Jesus Christ. If I get a bad health report, and I've got them before, if I get bad news about my family or friends or anything else, <clears throat> I've determined that nothing is going to move me off of faith in Jesus Christ. Now, 
the Lord is going to have to show up in that moment and pour faith into my life, which I believe he does already. So we close there. Last conclusion. Uh, verse 39 and 40. And all these, having obtained a good testimony. What kind of testimony? A good testimony. Through faith. Did not receive the promise. They didn't receive the Messiah. God having provided something what? Better. We better. goes from, from good to better. And you are on the better side of the scale. You are on this side of the scale where we've received the promise. How is it better? Our sins have been atoned for by Jesus Christ, the Son of God, not through a lamb. Our high priest is Jesus, the Son of God, not the son of Aaron. His spirit dwells within us. We've been invited to draw near behind the veil, not to stay out in the court of the Gentiles. We get to see the full picture of God's plan for salvation We know about Bethlehem. We know about Nazareth. We know about the cross. We know about the empty tomb. They talked about these things, but they didn't understand them. But you are part of a better um, covenant. You're a part of something that's complete and full. And, of course, the writer here is trying to convince them, don't go back to that which was good. Stay with that which is better. And the better is always with Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness, your kindness. Lord, you have brought us into the better. And your son is the best, Lord. And we are grateful to read of all, your, all the great works that you did in the past and how Israel's sin was atoned for and the altar that they built and the temple that they made. Lord, it is all good. But Lord, what you have provided for us in your son, Jesus Christ, It's amazing to us. It's amazing grace that he would come and take on human flesh, that he would bear in his body our sin. And we get to understand the prophets in a way that not even the prophets understood what they were writing. So, Lord, to whom much is given, much is required. And, Lord, we know what you require of us. You require that we would have faith. So I just want to let each of you respond. Maybe you've never come to faith in Jesus Christ. And you need to trust and believe in him. Stop doing it your way. Or maybe you're a believer that's come into faith, but man, you got your hands on 10 different things to try and and topple and overcome the tall walls around your life. And you, you hear the spirit of the Lord speaking to you. It's like, put them down and trust in me. Or maybe it's the exploits. The Lord is calling you into something. No, no, don't think it up. Let the, let the Spirit of God put it in your heart. You don't have to dream something up. God will lead you into those things. But when he puts them there, are you willing to step out? Have a conversation with the Lord. We're going to close with this song in just a moment. Lord, we just say we will follow. We will obey. Lord, help us even when you put things in front of us that, are, that make us feel weak and vulnerable, that we will say, yes, Lord, I will follow. In your name we pray.